there's, there's one more to come, unless I think of anything else to say on the topic, which I probably will and can. But I, I just want to review first where, where we've been. I think it's really important to have a little bit of a map in our minds as to where this whole series uh, fits together. We, we started out early in the month of February with a guest um, speaker, Mark Correa, and uh, he had a message about the generosity of God, which we celebrate in communion. And one of the reasons why I want to do communion last today is to have a celebratory focus on our, on our communion. And uh, so that really kicked us off on this whole idea of generosity. Because in communion, we commemorate the generosity of God in giving His only Son that we might have eternal life. That we might access an inheritance that includes divine health, divine prosperity, and personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we start from the premise that God is generous, that one of His attributes is generosity. And then when I started my own contribution to the series, we focused on 2 Corinthians 9, which is as best a treatise on giving for special purposes as you will find anywhere in the Word of God. And that happened to coincide with the Sunday that we set aside the special offering for the flood in north and northwestern Queensland. I did say there that I didn't think that that particular chapter provided a basis for giving to the local church on a regular basis, although you will find that probably 99% of pastors would argue differently. I do, however, think that a strong case for giving to the local church is made in 1 Corinthians 9. And it's kind of ironic, I guess, that we're talking 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and then 1, pardon me, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, if you might recall, the reason why I argued that this was a good, sound basis for giving to the local church is that the, the context there at the time was that the people who were teaching the church or pastoring the church generally were itinerant. And so they visited the churches in the various cities on a regular basis, teaching and, when necessary, correcting. And 1 Corinthians 9 makes a strong case that those people should be supported by the local church. In our modern context, of course, the, the pastoral role is generally not an itinerant role. So we now have an institution that we call the, the church, which is not quite the same thing as the ecclesia. The church is, if you like, the church gathered, which is what we are experiencing here this morning, within four walls, within a building and within an institutional structure. And I believe that that then provides the ecclesia, the body which is scattered out there in the marketplace from Mondays through Saturdays, we provide what you need in order to be effective ambassadors for Christ in that context. From there we moved on to looking at tithes according to the Old Testament. And uh, I told you there, I think I'd been studying tithing off and on since I was 14 years of age. And um, I, I would claim that I know a little bit about it. 
I've read a lot of commentaries, I've read a lot of theologians on, on tithing, had a look at church history as well. And of course tithing, as it is taught in many churches today, is relatively recent. It came in around about 1870, and uh, was given a bit, bit of a boost in 1873, certainly in the United States and to a lesser extent in Europe, because there was a significant economic depression and the churches were finding it very difficult to fund their activities. So that's carried over to the modern era, era particularly in evangelical, charismatic and Pentecostal churches. So in the Old Testament we see that there was law which concerned three different tithes. The first or the Levitical tithe was 10% out of the increase of the land, which basically meant uh, newly born animals and the crops that were produced on the land. On the land, there were a tenth of that was to be given over to the Levites because they weren't allowed an inheritance in the land of Israel. What that meant was they could not produce their own sustenance. They had to rely on the tithe for their food. Now out of their tithe, sorry, out of their amount, out of that tithe, they had to tithe 10% to the priest. Alright? So the Levites, what it amounted to was that the Levites were not allowed to own land. Because if you owned land, you were able to produce food for your sustenance. They couldn't do that. So the purpose of that original Levitical tithe was to make it possible for them to live. But they also had to discipline themselves to tithe out of that amount to, to the priests. Uh, the second tithe was a tithe which was focused on the major ceremonial festivals that were part of the life of Israel. And that was to be set aside so that you and your whole household, including all your servants, and your animals could actually go to the place that God had designated as the place for the feast. And so that tithe was very closely associated with the whole idea of building community, a community that has relationship with God and a community in which there are functional relationships. That was the second tithe. And then there was the third tithe that some people argue was the first tithe but applied in a different way in the third year. The tithe of the third year was a tithe that was set aside to look after all of those who had no means of sustenance themselves. So that included the Levites, it included the orphans, the widows and the foreigners who lived within Israel because they didn't have access to land either. In fact, foreigners were not allowed, they were forbidden under the law to own land in Israel. And finally, there was also law surrounding first fruits and uh, at the beginning of the harvest time uh, if you like a sample of the first fruits was to be brought and offered to God so that's Old Testament makes fascinating reading absolutely fascinating reading I often thought just exactly if we were to try to apply it today how would we now, I think it's pretty difficult but I did make the comment if you really try to work it out I think ultimately you'll go mad because I just don't think I just don't think anybody has ever fully worked out how we would apply the laws of tithing in our modern context. 
But if, if you were to look at it, the, the first tithe was only a tithe out of, if you like, agricultural produce. So I suspect if we were to apply it analogously today, that's a hard word to say, analogously, anyway, in a similar way, today, it would probably actually be businesses that should be paying the tithe, not individuals. So I just can't see much point in us having this long debate about how do we apply that Old Testament law today because there would be 50,000 different ideas about how it might be, be applied. It was never applied to wage workers, wage labourers, one of the reasons was that at what they used to call a day labourer, they only received enough for subsistence. And that's why under Old Testament law, you had to pay your workers at the end of every day. Because they only got enough, basically, to pay for the meals and basic shelter and clothing. That's all they got. And so the law, in order to protect them, said... You've got to pay them every day. And there were other laws that protected the workers as well. Like if you took the worker's cloak as surety for a debt, you had to give it back to them at the end of every day. Why? Because it was cold at night. So the law said, give the cloak back at night and then get it back the next day. You see? So I really think it's very difficult to apply the Old Testament laws of tithing satisfactorily today. Could argue, for example, as I mentioned, that the second tithe, well, that's all taken care of. Sorry, uh, the, the, the second tithe, yeah, that's taken care of because we do holidays and all that sort of jazz. And the third tithe is taken care of through our taxes. The average tithe under the Old Testament worked out to be 20% a year. And uh, I don't know whether that matters very much anyway, but some people have said we should be tithing 23%. I've seen that particularly American um, pastors, I've, I've seen them say that, you should tithe 23% of your salary to the church because that's the first, second and third time. It's actually 23.333 repeater if you want to be really pedantic about it. Um, so there you have it. Now, I'm not suggesting, of course, that we shouldn't support the local church. I'd be a bit silly if I did. But tithing in the New Testament, as we um, spoke about last, last week, I think it was, that uh, Jesus criticised the scribes and the Pharisees for their legalistic approach to tithing. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't actually critical about the fact that they tithed. What he was critical about was that they got so caught up in law, in legalism, that they had omitted the most important thing, which is love, justice and mercy. Well, Jesus says justice mercy and faith. They got so caught up in their law, and of course they added a lot to the 613 laws that were already there. So they, in order to implement the law, they had come up with all these other laws. And so they were very particular about certain things, but in being so particular, their focus had shifted away from what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy and faith. In other words, they'd forgotten about love and they ended up actually oppressing the people, not blessing the people. So Matthew 23, 23 is often used to 
make the point that tithing still applies today. I went to great lengths last week to read the context around Jesus' statement. And the context was he was really ripping into the Pharisees. And it really had little to do with tithing per se. It was about the way that they lived and the way in which they oppressed the people whom they should have been leading and blessing. The other area that we spoke about last week was Hebrews 7. Again, this is often quoted as evidence that tithing holds in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. But again, the point I made was that if you take the context, the context was that the writer of Hebrews was trying to explain that the new covenant under which we operate now, this covenant of grace, is different to the old covenant. And the point that was being made was that Jesus was not a Levitical priest. He wasn't a priest after the order of the Levites. He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, according to the Bible, he had no history and there's no record of him dying. And so the author of Hebrews says he was a priest of a different order. And some commentators say... He was actually Jesus. Others say he was a type of Jesus. And that is referred to in this chapter of Hebrews. The idea is Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, who was a priest and a king. He's not of the order of Aaron, who was a priest alone. Jesus is a better priest than Melchizedek, who comes not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to to the power of an endless life. And so I would submit that what this chapter is about is a characterisation of Jesus as priest and king, the one who ushered in the new covenant. And that is the major point. What I want to do today, and, and I don't really apologise for taking so long to review this because you probably haven't heard a lot of what I've shared in your own um, church, church history. And look, I'm not critical of what other people believe. I, I can take you to many, many uh, very well-known, highly respected Pentecostal pastors who would disagree with me, some of them very strongly. And uh, I don't expect you all to agree with me either. Um, but we're, you know, we're always up for, for discussion. But what I want to turn to now is some principles of generosity because, as I've said, all through this series, I believe that for the New Testament follower of Jesus Christ, for Christians today, it's not about tithing. It's not about calculating the less or the more. It is actually about living a generous life. And uh, by generosity, I mean generosity in, like right across the board. I've said before, three main areas. Generosity of thought. Think generously. Speak generously. And act generously. Those three areas. Thinking, speaking and acting. I want to share with you a few, a few scriptures. Some from the book of Proverbs and some from the New Testament. 
In Proverbs 11, verses 24-25, we read this. There is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will be watered himself. Now Proverbs is one of what we call the books of wisdom. It's not a book of law. Now even though it's part of the Pentateuch, but it's what we call a book of wisdom along with Ecclesiastes and the book of Job. So it's the book of Proverbs, it doesn't establish, if you like, hard and fast rules. It's not legal in the same sense that, say, Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Exodus are, where God gives law to the people. So, in a sense, Proverbs is outlining principles. Principles that are based on the nature of God and on the nature of humanity. And here we have important principles concerning generosity. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. That's a reference to the agricultural society of the day. Because back then, they didn't have machinery to sow seed. Seed was held in a, in a bag which was slung across the shoulder, much like a man bag today. And uh, if you were right-handed, of course, you'd put your hand in and you would scatter the seed. It's called broadcast seeding. Now, if you scattered just a few seeds, you wouldn't get a big crop. But if you scattered seeds generously, you would get a good crop. So you see the, the metaphor there of scattering generously and you get a bigger increase. Because the, the, the idea of increase there is about producing from the land. And of course increase was to, to uh, what the tithe was applied to in Old Testament laws of tithing. It was a tenth of your increase that became the tithe. So we, I think, are encouraged by this wisdom in Proverbs to be generous, to, as it were, scatter generously. And in so doing, we will experience increase. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. In other words, stingy people won't get rich. Now, remember this is wisdom, and you will always be able to point to some stingy people who are rich. Right? Uh, Dickens, Charles Dickens used to write about people like that. And there have certainly been times in history where there's been unjustifiable wealth in the face of unjustifiable poverty. And there's still some countries in the world today where that remains the case. But the general principle here is that if you withhold, so instead of scattering, if you hold it all close to yourself, you will eventually fall into poverty. And it doesn't just mean spiritual poverty or poverty of the soul. It also means financial poverty. 
There's another proverb, in fact it's Proverbs 11.26, just in the next verse, which is very interesting because that verse goes on to say, the people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells. Now I often trot that one out as, a, as in support of the notion of what I would call biblical economics or biblical capitalism. You see, if just think about this. If all of the people who produce goods and services in Australia decided not to sell anymore, right, they just kept it to themselves, we would fall into poverty very, very quickly. So, you know, I'd drive down to the Coles supermarket at Pimpermark and uh, the doors would be closed. I wouldn't be able to buy anything. I'd go to the Shell service station because we got my four cents per litre discount because I shopped at Coles last week. Oh, they're not selling petrol from the Bowsers. I go to have my semi-annual checkup with my dentist. It's all closed. I mean, how would that be? All I would then be able to do is to eat the aubergines that grow well in my backyard. Now, they do grow well, but I don't like them. <laughs> Jeanette doesn't mind aubergines. <laughs> she scattered generously. <laughs> yep, she likes aubergines. But you see my point. There's wisdom in that. There will be a curse upon him who withholds grain. Because ultimately, if we all hold it all to ourselves, nobody receives a blessing. And our whole society would break down. And then it goes on to say, but blessing will be upon the head of him himself. So we can even be generous when we're being paid for stuff. If people withhold, it will indeed lead to poverty. And it could lead to poverty as a nation. That's one reason why I'm vehemently against socialism. I'm actually going to teach about not who to vote for, but how to make up your mind about who to vote for before the federal election. That's something which is very much on my heart. But, see, this is what happens with socialism. Ultimately, everybody stops producing. And there's not a single country on the planet that has ever experimented with socialism that hasn't fallen into poverty. At the moment, we can witness Venezuela, a country that had enormous reserves of uh, crude oil. It ought to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And people are leaving in droves because of socialism. Just while I'm on that, let me read you another, just something else out of, out of Proverbs. Um, Maybe I should apologise for this, I don't know, but I just feel so, so strongly. I, I'm, I, I don't really advocate capitalism because there's, there's so much wrong with it, with, with greed and, and consumerism. It's so marred by sin. I prefer to talk about biblical economics. But um, in uh, Proverbs chapter 1, starting verses, verse 10 and runs to verse 15. 
or it actually runs to verse 16. Listen to this. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait. Sorry, I haven't got my glasses on. Let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoils. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. Now that is the essence of socialism. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. And uh, this whole idea of chucking everything into the same purse, which is the basis of socialism, it has never worked anywhere in the whole of human history. Why? Because the one who withholds more than is right, at least in poverty. If the producer hangs on to their product, it leads to poverty. And the curse, ultimately, is the curse of poverty. Poverty is a curse. So, there needs to be a level of generosity in our society as a whole for it to function at any level of material blessing. The generous soul will be made rich. The generous soul will be made rich. Now, soul, remember, that's our thought processes. That's our mind, our emotions, our will. Remember, think generously. Think generously. Think well of people. Unless you've got incontrovertible evidence that you should not think well of someone, automatically think well of them. Think of nice things to say and think about them. Think of nice things to say and think about your situation. Because even if it's the worst situation you can imagine, guess where God is? He's right there with you by the Holy Spirit. He who waters will be watered himself. He who waters will be watered himself. In other words, the person who lets go, who generously lets go, that person will themselves be watered. It sounds to me, when you read the whole of those two verses, plus 26, that there's some kind of principle operating, a universal principle that's operating and the interesting thing is, if I was the only generous person on the planet, I don't think this would work. We're talking here about generosity as a general attribute of people. I would have to say that I have met a lot of poor people, and I have also met a lot of rich people. I've had coffee with billionaires, people who are Christians who are actually billionaires. And I would have to say that I have encountered more generosity in those rich people than I have in many poorer people. Now it leads me to believe that practically the way we think and act definitely has an influence on our own level of prosperity. You would 
be very familiar with the notion that we cannot serve two masters. We can't serve God and mammon, mammon being money. That's in Matthew 6.24. I would have to say that I have known more poor people, people doing it tough, who have actually made mammon their God than rich people. Now this is my experience. I, I won't necessarily argue that this is general throughout the community, but this is my experience. And if you are constantly, constantly thinking about money, speaking about money, worrying about money, then you have probably allowed yourself to come under the influence of the spirit of man. And I think you need to let the Holy Spirit turn your thinking around. Turn your thinking around. And begin to think generously. Begin to focus on God, who is generosity itself. You can find other references similar to these principles in Luke 6.38. That's the very well-known give, and it will be given to you. Shaken down, flowing over. Galatians 6.7 also introduces the idea of reaping and sowing. I don't really have time to go into detail on those scriptures, but you might want to write those down and uh, have a look at them later. Let, let me move on to a couple of other uh, principles from Proverbs. Proverbs 23, verses 6 to 8. Listen to this. Do not eat the bread of a miser. Uh, that word miser can also be translated as Someone who is eager to get rich. So someone who's focusing on becoming rich. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. In other words, he doesn't want you to, actually. The morsel you have eaten, you will vomit up, because you are disgusted at his attitude. That's what the, the, the Greek actually means. Uh, sorry, the Hebrew. You'll vomit it up because you are disgusted at his attitude. The morsel you have eaten up, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. This is saying, don't even be in the company of a stingy person. I, um, I just, I feel very uncomfortable at times when I'm in the company of stingy people. Uh, people who count every penny three times. We've got a budget, we've got to be wise, we need to be stewards, but there's a difference between being a steward and literally being owned uh, by your money. Now, I, I know people who have far more by, the way, by, by way of assets uh, than we do. That they've they've um, managed to accumulate, but I actually don't like being around them, because every conversation turns towards money and how bad it is to have to spend money on this and spend money on that. You know, one of the things I've learned to do over a long period of time is praise God that I have the money for that bill. You know what? Father, I, I thank you. I don't even have the attitude that I don't like paying my power bill. So, Father, I thank you that we can pay that power bill. Our air con is on at home now, right? I put it on at 7 o'clock this morning and I said to Jeanette, 
we can look forward to going home after church to a lovely courthouse. I thank God. I just sat in our lounge room this morning and I said, Lord, I thank you that we can actually do this. Because not everybody can. But it's, it's a shift in thinking. And uh, our, our family, we, we call ourselves the Starcoms. ST comes from St. Hill, the ARCK or whatever that comes from the Barkers, which is Lauren and Heath, and then obviously the end of that name comes from the Circles. So we call ourselves the Starcom family. And the, one of our trays is over catering. And, and it's not really for me to say we're generous, but we we love we love company. We love to, to serve food, and you know what? It's okay. We don't mind having. We'd much rather have stuff left over than not enough. If you eat with us, I can guarantee you won't be eating with misers. We don't have a secret desire, a secret eagerness to get rich. <laughs> We certainly don't believe you would ever vomit because you became disgusted with our attitude. <laughs> you might vomit because of my cooking. <laughs> <laughs> different, different thing altogether. Proverbs 28.22 says this, The stingy are eager to get rich and unaware that poverty awaits them. So I think the wisdom here is don't surround yourself by people who aren't generous because they'll do you no good. Don't surround yourself by people who are not generous because it would do you no good. I uh, did some reading around this, this verse. Uh, just this morning, actually, I got up a little bit earlier. I just wanted to check what various commentators had said about this verse because Jesus is not recorded anywhere in the Gospels as saying that he's more blessed to give than to receive. And... Uh, some theologians have argued, oh, well, Paul got it wrong. He was mistaken. And I'm scratching my head. I'm thinking, how can somebody who's an academic, professor of theology at some university, say that? I mean, how much of the Bible does one gospel take up? How much of the Bible does four gospels take up? How much paper do you think it would take to write down everything you said in the last week? Right? You don't need to be a theologian to work out that the likelihood is that everything Jesus said wasn't recorded in the Gospels. I mean, it even says he, 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 he performed too many miracles to record. So the, the notion that Paul is quoting Jesus that he's wrong, he's mistaken or making it up just doesn't hold water. Because there's no way in this wide world that everything Jesus ever said could possibly have been recorded in the Gospels. And Paul lived at the same time as Jesus. And him being a scholar and him being so keen before his conversion to persecute Christians, I would say he had a pretty good knowledge of what Jesus said. And Paul quotes Jesus as saying, it is more blessed to give 
than to receive. The Greek word makarios has connotations of large or, or long duration. I had a look at John Wesley's notes. I, I, I find John Wesley very insightful in terms of management of money and, and generosity and that, that area in general. And, and he says that the word to give there means to imitate God. It is more blessed to imitate God than to receive. And why would giving be imitating God? Because God is generous. God is a giver. And of course, it is more blessed to be like God than not to be like God. And we are made in His image. It tells us that way, way back in the first chapter of the Bible. Another sense in which it is more blessed to give than to receive is that we trust God to provide us. When we let go, we trust God to provide. When we let go, we trust God to provide. I'll give you a little testimony here. We were able to pay off our mortgage a little under, oh, about six months ago now. We had a fairly substantial mortgage because we moved to the Gold Coast from um, Highfields near, near Toowoomba and we had to spend a lot more to buy a house here than we got for our house back in, in Highfields. And uh, for quite a few years, Jeanette and I had, had a desire to be debt free so that we'd have resources to sow into things that at that time we weren't able to do. And um, I was, I, I, I'm fairly active in managing my own superannuation. Uh, we managed to do very well actually. I had some extremely um, profitable investments. And uh, so about six months ago when I finished work at CHC, I wasn't fully aware of this, but as far as the tax law is concerned, I was deemed to have retired, which meant I could access my super, I had a pension fund that I could access without paying any tax on it. And so I was able to, it was about $300,000, I was able to take $300,000 out and pay off our mortgage. So we're now mortgage free. That is the blessing of God. That is the blessing of God. He spoke to me and said, you need to become more active in managing your superannuation. So I paid quite a lot of money to a Christian financial advisor. We meet up two or three times every year. And the money I started with has multiplied pretty healthily. I'm saying that as testimony. I'm not boasting. I hope you don't think I am boasting. I, I would never want to boast. It's a testimony of the goodness of God and a testimony of the truth of His Word that I no longer have to pay $1,300 every fortnight off on a mortgage. And we're free to do other things. In Hebrew thinking, generosity and righteousness are simply two sides of the same coin. I did a study of righteousness some years ago now and in the King James Version of the Bible the word righteousness appears 453 times 
And I studied every single instance of the word righteousness. And you see, it's just the other side of the coin to generosity as far as the Hebrew thinking is concerned. In the, in the Hebrew, sadaka means, is, it refers to the law of charity, and sadak means righteousness, justice, or fairness. The Hebrew words for generosity and righteousness are very, very closely related etymologically, that is, in terms of the language. They are very, very closely related. And so, a righteous person in Old Testament times was somebody who lived according to the law. They were blessed under the law and they were able to be generous because of that blessing. For us today, we are declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible characterises us as the righteousness of Christ in God. Sorry, the righteous people. We are characterised as the righteousness of God in Christ. The righteousness of God in Christ. So God sees us as righteous. And this is why I say we need to be generous if we are to become what I call a fully fulfilled Christian. Because it's in our nature. And if you fight against your, your, your newly generated nature, you will not be fully fulfilled. Just quickly, a, a New Testament reference to generosity as a, as a lifestyle. Galatians 6, verses 9 to 10. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us not grow weary while doing good. This is an ongoing lifestyle. There will come a time when we'll reap if we don't lose heart. In other words, if we don't lose faith, if we keep looking to God, we will reap. I first had a word from God about being debt-free in 2008, late 2008. In fact, I beg your pardon, it was actually early 2009. It was I was driving home after my last day of work at USQ, where I used to work at the University of Southern Queensland. I was driving home, and God spoke to me and said, you're going to be debt free. Well, it was actually 2018 when we came free of that debt. But you hang in. You continue to live a generous lifestyle, but you believe you believe that you will reap. And I think it's interesting also. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but focus particularly on those who are our own Christian brothers and sisters. That means in the local church, but also in the wider Christian community. There is a sense in which we are to look to the needs of those who are Christians first. What do we say at Ignite Life Church? Well, you've heard me quote this before. Generosity should be as natural as breathing to the Christian because we are the righteousness of God in Christ and because it reflects the fact that we're made 
in his image. Well, I've gone over time again. I'm getting a bit naughty at that, aren't I? I, I haven't finished. Now, Dave, are you, are you doing the discussion point next week? The 17th, is that right? Yes. Yeah, so you'll have a break from me next week. Um, you will enjoy Dave. It's, he hasn't um, had an opportunity to do the discussion point for a little while. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. But what I want to do next time, in a sense, I've talked about theory without spending too much time on practice, okay? So what I want to do uh, next time, I'm up here, which I guess will be in two weeks' time, I want to actually talk about making the transition from what you might call works-based or law-based giving 